Well, I think we've got a, a really good show for you today. There's some interesting stuff here. I think there's a lot to learn. But before we get going, I just wanted to mention again that um, we operate on a, a sort of a, a model of some advertising and listener support to make the show work. So if you're interested, you'd like to support the show, you can do it. We would really appreciate it. Um, you can drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button. And anything $10 or more can get you a sticker sent back at you. And we have a, we have a sort of a varying scale there of, of things we can do for it. But well, we certainly need it. And thank you very much. Are you a beginner, intermediate, advanced, really advanced rider? Where do you fit on the rider skills scale? Well, find out today on our rider skills segment with Brett Tax. As well, we're going to talk about rider sag. Don't know what rider sag is? Everybody should know what their rider sag is. You definitely need to listen to this episode. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Witt. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Okay, well, for our rider skills segment for today, we've got a a really interesting topic. It's how to rate your skill level as a rider. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background. We we have Brett Tax coming up in just a minute, but I want to give you a background on how this came about. We, We got an email from a listener named Bill. And Bill pointed out that he remembers hearing in one of the episodes, me talking about one of our sponsors that was doing an expert only ride. And what he's saying is, well, what is an expert? What is a beginner and intermediate? Where do you find out where you fit on the scale? And a little bit of searching around shows you that there is no standard for the adventure motorcycling community. If you are a Harley rider, as Bill pointed out in his email, you could simply go to the website, www.conepatterns.com. 
And that website has some charts up and information on there where you can take some cones, you can put them out in the parking lot and measure the distances and do figure eights and circles. And if you can master all of those exercises that they put out, then you can consider yourself proficient at that level. Well, that's great for street riding, but it doesn't cross over for adventure motorcycling because there's so many other variables when it comes to riding adventure motorcycles. And, and the big factor being in particular, the surface is not asphalt, right? Where we're heading off into dirt. So we put the question to Brett and Brett came up with a system. He actually made a system for this. And you're going to hear more about this when we talk with Brett. But I'm just going to say that if you would like, grab a pen and paper, you can follow along and make notes, or you can go to our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on this episode and look at the show notes because the the charts really that we're reading from, the information that we're reading from is in the show notes for this episode. And you can look at it and listen as you go along, or you can go back afterwards and do it. Here's Brett. Brett, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Glad to be back. Well, the question for today's segment is, how do we rate ourselves skill level wise? And this was sent in by a listener named Bill. How do we tell whether we're beginner, intermediate, or advanced? Because as far as I can tell, looking around, there is nothing out there as far as the adventure motorcycling community that is definitive in helping us figure out where we sit in the scale. So how do we do it? It, it really is hard to classify yourself. And I, I, when we first talked about this, you were going, is there a simple way to do this without making it too complex? And, you know, it's amazing because before, uh, before today, I had probably 20 sheets in front of me of paper that diagrammed and had algorithms to figure out how we are as a writer. And of course, that's kind of crazy. So I helped kind of simplify that and broke it down into two categories. And one is we have to classify where we're going to ride and what those features are. And then we have to classify ourselves and how we handle those features. So since we're on Adventure Rider Radio, and I'm going to assume that most of our riders are adventure riders, that's where I started off with is just going, hey, let's focus on uh, on the average guy and the average rider and, and try to classify ourselves with that in mind. Okay, well, let's look at the system. You have the system laid out with five different levels. How do we approach this? So I, I, we're going to post this up on, on the website. That's why I sent it out to you. I, and I used uh, two different ways for people to track. This one was a symbol uh, most people are familiar with. So if you go out jeeping or skiing, then you'll be very familiar. You know, we have the green dot, the blue square, the black diamond, a double diamond. And I stopped at five. And the reason is, is that I wanted to make sure we had a middle ground, a number three. And that's, that's you know, where the average guy, when he's experienced, knows what he's doing. He's He's been out riding. Maybe he's done some training. He's going to land in the middle there. And then if you really want to get silly, then you can get up to that, that upper level. And if you've never done anything and you're riding a street bike out there, you should be able to make that that first level. And that's that's why I picked five. And and that made it actually simpler than some of the systems I saw out there that we had maybe 10 or they had partials, you know, a, a, 10, a 9.5 or an 8.5. So that's why I started off the way I did. Well, we'll go through each level here. But is there is there any criteria? Is there any sort of um, outline that we need to know before we get started? Well, two things. One is we have to make some assumptions. And I already let off by going, I'm going to assume 
that these are adventure riders and that there's some travel involved. And I don't mean travel like around the world, but most of us, we want to go out for the weekend or we want to go out camping. And so we're going to have some kind of luggage on us and we're going to be on larger bikes. And and we know that adventure riders ride 250s and there's nothing wrong with riding a 250. In fact, there's a lot of things right about riding a 250. And, and then there's the other side. But for this for this chart, for this these features, what I'm assuming is that we're going to be somewhere in the 650 to 1200 range, so mid to large, a bike that's relatively stock, you know, maybe some minor suspension adjustments, you know, springs to, to make it right, you know, basic protection, you know, some luggage, some crash bars, but nothing crazy modified. We're not talking about modifying. I've seen 1200s with 21 inch wheels on them or, or KTMs with dirt bike tire rims built for me. And that's a that's a much longer, you know, much farther stretch, you know, from what I'm talking about. This is the weekend rider. And that's one presumption I have on this. And then the second part is just like you said, how do you class yourself into each of these categories? And I'm going to start off with just knowing how you will fit in, at least the way I look at it. If, if you are proficient at every skill set within each one of these cat or any one of these categories, I'm going to say, that's what you're classified at. And the way you're going to know if you're proficient is if it, if you feel the same way you feel when you get off your street bike. So if so you're, you're not out stressed the, out, you're, you're, you're not sweating profusely, you're not completely drained of energy. Exactly. And I, I had to really consider who am I targeting on this? What is my gauge for riders and what's average? And, you know, I do training and what I've discovered is that the people that I train, the people that I take through on like the backcountry discovery route, sometimes they've already done it on their own. They come back because they want to do it better. These riders perform way, way outside the norm. And these are guys that often come in that have zero experience coming through the gate. So I really didn't want to use them as the base. So I'm using the guys that come to rent from Tour USA, motorcycle rentals. You know, this, uh, this rating system is actually going to them so they can build their route. So if people are, are doing tours with them, they know what they're getting into. And also for PSSOR, the school going, how are we going to rate our, our trails and our training? And that's where it comes from or, or where it's going to be used. But when I look at the renters that come in and I go to rallies and watch people on the, on the rides and the rallies and, and what they do, that's the gauge I'm using as far as going, okay, that's a novice, a basic intermediate advance and so on and so forth. So I'm not trying to skew the scale. Okay. So to look at your skill level classification, um, which you have at the bottom of this information, you've got a, a, a green, a yellow and a red. Basically, we're going to use this assessment as we go through each level. And, and as the, the listener tries to figure out where they fit into this, the green, let's just run through those green, yellow and red. Okay. So the green, the, the green is, this means you're proficient at that level. The green is how you feel when you get off the bike, uh, like off your street bike. So if you're taking a break, if you think about this, we don't get off our street bikes on a street ride because we're exhausted, sweating profusely, and and we're having trouble standing up anymore, you know, with the wobbly knees and everything else. We get off because our knees are, you know, are tired from sitting or uh, because I'm hungry or because it's a hot day and I just need to get out of the, the weather and, and rest and cool down. That's why we take breaks. And if I'm getting... If I'm stopping on my adventure bike because I did a route because I'm just, yeah, I just need a break. I need some water. 
Uh, I'm just as relaxed riding that bike as I do my street bike. I can multitask. When I say multitask, I'm, I can keep track of my GPS and where I am. I, I am free enough in my thought that I can keep looking over my shoulder and make sure everybody else is still in tow, that I'm still free enough in my thought that I can pay attention to, hey, the bike doesn't sound quite right, or there's a sound that's I, I should stop and check out. Or, But that's what I mean by multitasking. If that's just something you're doing and you're not thinking about, you don't have to put an effort into the process, you're proficient. That's, that's where you're rated. And that's why I, I put green there. But we can't ever move into a new class without a transition period. And so the yellow is a transition. And this is where you might have a tip over once in a while. I'm not plowing into a tree, but you know, you, you just, you struggle a little bit more. Maybe you'll get into some sand, you drop your feet to the ground, you know, or, or have a couple of dabs as opposed to just riding through it and not noticing it. Um, you're not expecting to come out of it with damage to your bike. I mean, I, I watch guys go out and they bend rims, they have pinched flats, they, they rip skid plates off their bikes. They just come out hammered and I'm going, that's not what your bike should do. And some people think that's normal wear and tear. If you really like extreme riding, maybe, but not for the average guy that's going out for the weekend to go camping. But there's that transitioning period where there is going to be some learning where you can multitask, but maybe you have to put a little effort into it. And, and then the last one, of course, is the red. And this is where you're going, hey, you are outside your skill level. And we've seen riders do this. I've seen riders go through very challenging sections that did not belong there. It doesn't mean they don't get to the other side. It just means they didn't do it with much, you know, much skill or, or without an extreme effort. And these are the guys who are getting off their bike and they're completely exhausted. Their knees are shot. They, you know, when they're on the bike, they're holding on so tight. There's no way they can even consider that anybody's around them. Their head won't even rotate. It's just bolted on because the muscles are so <laughs> stressed and, and everything else, you know, they're, when they come out, they're just expecting, Oh, well, I bent another rim. I blew up another shock. Well, of course I do. It, that's that you're doing something wrong. If you're damaging your rims and, and your tires and your suspension. And that's something you expect to happen. It's not that just that fluke occasion. That's your, you're way outside where you should be. You need to back it down a little, get into that yellow, that transitioning period until you can perfect those different skill sets and then, and then add the other challenge into it. And a lot of times if you're riding in the red, it's not repeatable. It's not like you can ride through a section and then ride through it again. You ride through it once, you make it. The next time you, you end up falling over or crashing, um, it's that sort of thing. And that's when you, you sort of know you're out there. Well, and and absolutely, because here's the other thing I, I pretty commonly hear from riders is they gauge themselves off their experience. And you and I both know experience is extremely valuable, but experience doesn't make you good or competent. And I've had riders that have been trained or I've trained that weren't necessarily at a higher level, even though they had that. And I know, I, I mean, you and I both know world travelers and I've ridden with some of these guys. And, oh my gosh, this guy traveled for, for eight or 10 years nonstop. He's gone places I'm still dreaming about going to. And I go riding with them and I go, I don't know how they made it. You know, I just don't know because they, even though they made it through, they didn't make it through with skill. You know, they made it through because they had people helping them porter their bikes through mud or porter their bikes through sand, literally. Or, you know, I've talked to some of them where they got into trouble and they had locals load their bike in the back of a truck and continue on. And absolutely, that makes an amazing adventure, but it doesn't 
necessarily count towards your skill set of going, well, I'm an advanced rider because I've ridden around the world, or I'm an expert rider because I've been riding for 30 years. You might be riding at a basic level for 30 years. But that's a good thing too, though, knowing your your limits and saying, okay, it's time to get help or it's time to put this on a truck. Keep yourself out of the red zone. And that's exactly the point. How do you how do you decide where you're going to go or know what you need, what equipment you need, what what kind of gear will you will you select? If you know that you're riding in the yellow and the red categories, if you know you're going to do that, you should be wearing the neck brace. You should have the motocross boots. You should have everything you can possibly do. Run with soft luggage instead of hard luggage. Do the things you need to do to help reduce that risk on the other side. No, you're probably rubbing your hands together thinking, okay, where do I fit in in this? Probably a little bit of stress and you're going to want to make some notes. Now, we will post this on the website in the show notes. So you'll be able to go to the show notes for this episode and and find this chart, which I, I definitely think you should do. Um, but go ahead and make some notes as we're going through this. Just before we start, though, Brett, we want to talk about just or, or mention the fact that it's not a uh, it's not a grading system as in black, double black diamond wins. It doesn't matter where you are in here. It's just, it's good to know where you are. So you can, if you want to, advance to the next level. But there's no, there's no shame in being at a one. Uh, and there's no, you know, not, not necessarily the, that you're a better person because you're at the double diamond five. Well, and that's 100%. I mean, we do this because it's fun. And that's why I'm not telling people you, you're never going to go into the red. I'm just going, if you know you're going there, you can make wiser choices on how to equip your bike or how to equip yourself. I mean, let's face it, if we wanted to be in a safe sport, we wouldn't be riding motorcycles. And, and the, the other thing too, is if you're at a, you know, at a level that you want to go higher on, I guess really, and, and I mean, this is, you know, a sale pitch for you, but I mean it, that the way to fast track this sort of thing is go get some instruction from somebody and actually learn the skills. And then you're going to advance because you're going to need the time afterwards. You need to learn the skills and then you're going to need your practice time. But if you can get those skills taught to you right off the bat, it's like you go out fully loaded. Well, and I've had riders come into me who had been riding for 15 years off road. And, you know, by the way, we're, we're doing this. They were maybe in a, in a level two easy, basic level and they leave at a very competent, very skilled intermediate level. And that's a huge jump to, to jump a full level. That's and just even from a course. Point, that, that's just from a, a, you know, doing a single tour with us for, you know, mm-hmm. three or four days in a venture camp or, or something like that. And that's why I didn't want to use our, our, you know, the people that come to us or come to me as a school or come to us for, for the guided tours or the training tours is because there's already a different mindset in those riders most of the time. And if you go and just talk to renters, renters that come to us and rent bikes and they, they don't do any formal training, almost always overestimate their ability. You know, they've told me all the B, uh, all the the backcountry routes they've done, all the off-roading they've done, and they want to do this. In fact, to, to tell a story, I had... Uh, a group that came through Tour USA and they rented a couple of bikes and they wanted two guys and they're like, hey, we've got three days and we want to be on the, we want to have like, you know, 90% off-road. And they have no idea what they're actually asking about. One of them has never even been on a gravel road. He rides a Harley and another guy had done dirt as a kid. And I'm thinking, you know, if all you do is the backcountry discovery route, which is nearly 600 miles from border to border, it's still only 50 50 because you still have to get to the two ends and there's a little less than that in between because there's some pavement areas and they have and that's a lot a lot a lot of off-road and dirt and people just don't realize what they're getting themselves into 
Okay, so it, at the start of this, it says route rating system that you've made, the one that we're going to go through right now. Just what does that mean right off the top? And I think you sort of covered it already, but just to reiterate. So as as we get into building these these tours for for Tour USA or building these training tours for with PSSOR, you know, because we're doing the training tours for them, uh, there kind of comes into this this idea of going, how do I explain to people what they're getting? Because we get people calling all the time, going, I, I want this. And they tell me what they want. And then in the end, they come back and, and we had one group come back. They left their panniers on the trail and the, and the bikes had, you know, damage to them. And, and, the, and the trail system I sent them on was below what they asked for. They have no idea. So putting together a route rating system that's targeted towards adventure class motorcycles with, with luggage so that when I say, hey, I'm going to put together a level two easy route for you. And they're and they go, wow, we no, we're better than that. We're we we want, you know, we're we're really good. We're expert riders. I'm like, okay. And you can send them a route rating system like this where they can look at the land features that they're gonna run into and then go, Oh, uh, actually you're right. We'll take the easy. Or, mm-hmm. you know, can we just do a novice level? We really just want gravel roads. That's that's all we're looking for. Gravel roads, maybe a surface mud, a puddle here and there. That's it. Nothing wrong with that. But when I send somebody out or I build a route and I'm responsible for that, I want to make sure they're getting the right thing. And, and the same thing when we classify the sections of the backcountry discovery routes we use for training or the adventure, you know, uh, the adventure camp we do. We do a, a novice level training ride after the camp so we can work on the skills we learned during the camp. We can work on navigation. People can work with confidence. They have instructors there to help give them additional feedback. They have a support vehicle. We have all of that. Well, I want to make sure that when somebody goes into that, they, at the end of the day, if they're expecting something crazy and we're going to go jumping over cliffs, that they're not disappointed. We can route the ride and go, we're going to go on a, on a class two ride or a class one ride at the end of the camp. Then they go, oh, I want to do that or not. Okay. So starting, we've got, a, we've got five levels we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the number one level, which has the symbol of, uh, you've made these symbols, have you? These are the these are standard symbols for jeeping, for oh, okay. motorcycle trail systems, and for skiers, and that's why Perfect. that's why these symbols were included. So universal. Okay, that that's great. So we we have a green uh, symbol here with a little squiggly line through it. It's uh, the rating you've put here is novice one. What do they have to accomplish to be at that level? So the the way I started off was if I'm I'm riding my street bike and I go up the driveway to your house, <laughs> that's pretty much. Uh, a novice level, you know, ride. So okay. this is a road where you're you're getting graded roads. You go onto a forest service road. They keep the the road well graded. It's usually two lanes. You have traffic passing in both directions. Uh, it, you may end up with some standing water on the road, but it's usually shallow, maybe a couple inches. You might have some debris that falls on the road, some sticks or limbs, you know, things like that. And the hills, you know, as far as hills, you're not really going up hills because it's a graded road. So these are going to be very similar to the roads that you'll see on, on, on public paved roads. Now, if you go to, you know, cities like, you know, Seattle or, uh, San Francisco, then, you know, you'll notice that there are some fairly steep <laughs> paved roads out there. But again, these are these are road-like grades. And and so that's where that level one novice is. This is the, I can take my Harley Davidson, I can take my, 
you know, my Ducati Monster. I mean, it's just it's just a gravel road that's well-graded, well-maintained. Basic rider, really. Most riders, you know, come out with their license. And there's nothing wrong with being at that level either because we've all been there. That's where everybody starts. Yeah, you, you don't need skid plates. You, you're not going to need knobby tires. We're, we're not going to be talking about standing up on the pegs. You just sit down and just ride down the road. And and in reality, there's a lot of roads. You go through the American Midwest and and through central Canada and the in the you know the farming regions. And a lot of the roads that are roads are just gravel roads. They're graded and they run to farms or towns or whatever. And and that's the kind of road we're talking about here. And not deep gravel. Yeah. Now we do have to keep in mind they because they're maintained. That means they have to grade them and they have to lay gravel down again. Um, I didn't actually list that in the level one novice. I actually put that up in the level two easy, because there are roads that I've sent people up on that that came back and had struggled, uh, even though these were wide, well graded roads. But because they had put the fresh gravel down, and it hadn't been packed in tight. The riders got extremely uncomfortable and uh, and nervous, and and although none of them had incident, again by our grading system, if it doesn't feel like you're riding your street bike, then you're not classed in that. So even at the novice level, they weren't there yet. They were they were still outclassed. The next level is easy too. Again, the same green symbol with a squiggly line through it. You class it as basic. Okay, what do we have in there? So basic is. What I classified, I started looking at land features and going, if I can make this land feature happen, I I can get through it without any skill, without any training, without any technique. If I can just bumble my way through and maybe eventually just um, figure out what works and doesn't work and become comfortable with it, that's what landed in the easy. So these are all sort of your your self-taught, no skill, no technique needed type of terrain features. So we're talking, you know, larger roads, a full lane wide or maybe two tracks. These are, again, graded, not just gravel, maybe graded dirt roads. Uh, You might have some ruts from other vehicles, but these are wide car ruts, you know, shallow and wide and and most likely dry. You might get some washboard, you know, especially on hills going up or down. There's quite a bit of those up north of uh, B.C., uh, going up that direction, mm-hmm. um, you know, some water bars, they might put some waters. We're not talking deep, sharp edged, but just nice little, almost like a reverse speed bump. Um, these are the kind of things where it's just not, you know, again, you don't need crazy skill. If you're going to go through a, a small water crossing, you know, sometimes they have, you know, where they have the the water washes where, you know, they dip down so that when there's flood waters, they, it can run over. And, you know, these might be, you know, f- you know, two or four inches deep so we can get through that sort of thing. The water's not moving fast. It might be stagnant. Um, obstacles, you know, the size of a curb or less. You know, so I put down four inches. You, you can get over a curb. Even if you have no idea, close your eyes and just ride at it. You'll end up on the other side of the curb. So, again, no technique needed. Um, same thing where you talk about, you know, rock or, or gravel, but just patches of this, you know, where you might just hit a, a little section. You're not running, you know, 200 yards or 200 miles of sand. You're running just, you know, that, you know, where they filled a, a pothole or maybe just a, a small section where they patched the road. And so this is, this is what I put into the easy categories, those types of features. And again, there's a complete list of these that you'll be able to put up on the website for the listeners. Uh, just mention hills because you have hills there at the bottom. 
I do have hills. So each one of these categories, I, I broke them down into what's the road like, what kind of water features are going to deal with, what kind of obstacles and what kind of hills. And on that particular hill, and again, everything from the previous category still counts. So we're still talking road like grades, but you might end up with some minimal loose rolling rocks, you know, a couple rocks here, there are a small patch of loose rocks. Uh, you might have gravel or rain ruts, you know, you, you see where you're going up these small hills and you know, it, especially later in the season after we've had the rains and they kind of ditch out that trench, you know, you might have some of these rain ruts that you may have to avoid or go around. Usually we don't have to ride in them, but visually they can be intimidating to riders. But in reality, they're they're not a feature that is of of concern, nor do you need any significant skill to ride around a rain rut. And that's why these all land into that easy category. And, and again, this is most all riders, even without training or guidance, they're going to work into this just by being on the road. This is where experience will take you. And a lot of people get freaked out by hills too. It doesn't, doesn't seem to take much up or down. Some people have one that freaks them out more than the other. And hills are definitely, um, you know, a significant, when I, when I work with people and I train with people, the very first, one of the very first things we do is we work on hills. We go up and down hills, ascending, descending. We work on stopping on a hill, going up. We work on doing dead stops from a hill. We park them on the hill and we start from that dead stop. So we're not spinning the tire around. We come downhill and this is terrifying for riders is to go downhill using your front brake on loose rock and then come to a complete stop. And we do that with our novice riders, you know, before we go out and on these, these intermediate riding trails, cause we need to get their skill sets up to that point. So the first time they do it isn't when they're on the trail. That finishes off level two, which you, you have labeled here as basic. Again, this will be in the show notes. So you just go to the show notes and, and look at this, but the number three level is moderate. And what you have here is intermediate. What's in the intermediate? Yeah. And the way I, I have this classified, so you've got four categories that you're looking across and on the left you have your symbol and the next category over is the way I rate the road. And that's why I rate that as an easy road. Number two is what I had. Uh, and now we're into the moderate. So it's a, a number three moderate. The very far right is the rider rating. That's what I would call a rider. I would say you're an intermediate rider if, if you can do this, but the features, land features are moderate. And that's why you see those too. Okay. And I, and I didn't mention that this is a blue square symbol on this one. Yes. Yep. And again, anybody that's a skier is, this is going to be very familiar to them. So uh, again, we start building up an increase in the difficulty of it. Uh, again, intermediate is someplace where a lot of riders can get on their own. Um, I don't see a lot of people get past this uh, and many people ride intermediate, but they never really get proficient. They never get to that point where they just feel this is natural. It's like walking. You know, it's like riding on the street. But now we're going to start talking about getting narrow single track ruts. You know, they're not wide car ruts. Maybe they're, they're motorcycle ruts or they get down narrower. There may be shallow sections where we start adding mud, you know, because mud can be so unpredictable. But, you know, a lot of surface mud or shallow mud is going to start being added into there. Patches of soft gravel, you know, where it's not just gravel scattered on top of a graded road, but now maybe it's a couple inches deep. Uh, you know, you're going to have... Um, different patches, you might have some soft sand, you know, that you might have to get through. We're not talking soft sand, like six inches deep. We're just talking, you know, on the surface kind of a stuff, maybe a couple inches deep at the top and, and, but not for miles of it, maybe the length of a couple of semi trucks, you know, a couple hundred feet, something like that. Uh, when we get into the water features, you know, the, in the basic and the novice or the novice and the easy levels we talked about before, 
in those levels, I'm assuming that, and and I put it down in the features category that these are predictable, you know, bases. So this is packed in rock, or it's a, it may even be a paved, you know, water crossing. And but when you get to moderate, that's when the base of that water starts changing up. You might have some mud in there. You might have some loose rocks you have to kick around underneath there. You you may not be able to see the bottom, and that's a big deal too. It may only be two inches, but if you have no idea what's on the bottom. You know, then that kind of ups it in the in its category and maybe about six inches deep. And the reason I came up with six inches is that's about the bottom of a skid plate for the average bike. So some some of them have more, some have a little less. But if you think of a V-Strom, they're about five and a half inches. Uh, a standard GS is somewhere around that six inch category. So that's why I picked six inches deep. That's when you're just skimming the bottom of the skid plate. Um you know, other things I, I have in obstacles there, you know, wet grass. I don't know if you've ever spent any time on wet grass, but that can certainly be, uh, yeah, it could be, <laughs> it, it, it could become quite exciting in a really big hurry. So, you know, I definitely, I put in wet grass cause that's a concern. It can be anything from super easy to very, very slick. And so grass, you know, change that puts it back into that moderate category obstacles, six inches high. Now to give a, a relevance to this, if you stack four two by fours on top of each other, that's six inches, you know, and that's what we're talking about. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but when riders ride up to it, and we do this with the adventure camp all the time, riders ride up to that six inch obstacle and to them, it, it might as well be a fortress wall. You know, they just, holy cow, that's really big. But also when I, as I was preparing for this, I was looking through, looking for photos of different land features that are described here. And I was looking through some stuff out in the Mohab, out in Utah, and realizing that a lot of those rocks, because they're one on the back of the uh, back of the other, you know, uh, you know, stacked into this this whole con- conglomeration of of challenges, six inches was pretty darn significant. If it's not just a single single obstacle, so that definitely uh, gave me a, a reason to stop at that that height because a lot of people think that's not a big deal. And then hills, you know, we start talking about shelves on the hills. You know, if you're going up a hill and it's got a like a curb height shelf, you know, um, I just did a, a video for Clemen mountain, which is one of the most notorious Hills on the Washington backcountry discovery route. And as you get to the top, there's a bunch of embedded rock with little shelves on it. And so you can go to the left through all the loose rock, or you can cut right and you hop up over these little shelves are about four inch shelves. And that's a, an intermediate to moderate, you know, obstacle, um, definitely on the limit for a lot of riders. A lot of people struggle on that Hill. Uh, we start talking about the hills getting narrower. You know, you might have switchbacks now instead of being nice graduals, uh, but maybe only single wide or, um, you know, single lane, you know, width, you know, full width, but, you know, maybe a, a single width blade. And so these are the kind of features that are going into that moderate. So you can see it definitely you start taking a step into the greater challenge. The other thing to keep in mind, and I haven't mentioned this and, and we haven't addressed it yet is. When you rate a trail, you have to rate it on the one section that they cannot go around with the hardest feature. So you can go on it. If I have a, a route that's 20 miles and there's 300 yards of, of you know, moderate challenge, I have to rate the whole thing as a moderate. So there are definitely levels of this as opposed to having 20 miles of moderate challenges, which... I might actually push up to the next level just because of the fatigue level that comes with it. That's moderate three, the uh, blue square. We're about to go into advanced. But before we do, what about standing? Does standing come in anywhere here? As it, like, would it show up on the scale? 
It, it really does. I, I added at the bottom a couple of notes and bullet points, and I call them additional considerations. And the reason is, is if you get into moderate, this is when you really start talking about you know, skill and technique becoming part of the equation is once you hit moderate. And that means if you're crossing over six inch deep water, you should be up on the pegs. You know, you shouldn't have your feet in the water. You shouldn't be sitting down because if anything kicks out or slips underneath, you don't have maximum control. If you're going over obstacles with a six inch edge, sitting on the, on the bike is just a really adventurous way to do it. <laughs> you know, when that, when that tire hits that, you know, especially the back tire and you go popping off the seat, that's going to change things. So under that considerations, I had mentioned that if you find yourself sitting or the first, the, when anything becomes stress, stress, in, yeah, stress inducing, you know, you see that gravel and you're like, oh shoot. And if your instinct is to drop to the seat instead of go up on the pegs, if you get into the sand and your instinct is drop seat and throw your feet out, uh, this is, or to paddle walk, this means you're still definitely in the basic category. I don't, I don't care where you're at on this except for the extremes. I mean, there are times in mud, you know, sticky mud where that bike doesn't move. You have to be off the bike just to push it, to get it going. So obviously there are, there are so many variables into this process and we're trying to make it simple. But if you're sitting, if that's your preference or you don't stand at all, you're a basic rider. You know, if you, if you get into these categories and, um, you find yourself and you only work with the throttle and you're, you're constantly, you know, spinning the back tire, uh, you know, you're still doing, these are basic skill sets. You know, you haven't moved on to where you're really using technique to control your traction, to control your drive. Is, uh, I'm just going to say, you know, I'm, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but, but is clutch control, you, you think it's a basic thing? That's not a more intermediate thing when you learn that? And that's why I, I think by the time you get to get to intermediate, you have to have clutch work right. to truly be proficient at, at many of those intermediate or moderate, um, you know, features, you know, road features or land features. You really do have to have that clutch work and, and everything, everything, and to give you an idea of how important this is, every single class I do pavement or un, unpaved involves some sort of direction or training for the clutch, you know, whether it's a basic ride or dirt, whether it's adventure riding, whether it's an advanced class. And somebody mentioned at one point, I can't, I'd love to give credit to him, but I can't remember who put this down. Um, but the, the difference between an advanced rider and a basic rider is how good they are at using the skill sets that they have because a basic rider uses the same thing. They have a throttle, a clutch, a brake, they stand, they sit, you know, so what makes them any different than an expert? It's how well they use it. Okay, so let's look at the advance now. I'm sure um, a lot of people will be very excited to, fit, to see if they, they fit into the advanced category. And again, you know, I got to go back and say this again, that it doesn't matter. It's not, like it shouldn't be an ego thing, but it should be or it could be for you a goal thing, which section well, you run into. Or, or I think, into. yeah, and I think as we go through the through this, you know, because again, for a rating system, I call this difficult. So if, you know, if you're an intermediate rider, you're in the moderate, you know, challenges, but now we're talking difficult. So we're going to start right off with the one on top, because this is a great one. Okay. And sorry, and, and difficult is the black diamond, single black diamond, and it's what you would consider to be an advanced rider. Yeah. If you are proficient in these categories, if everything I, I mentioned here, you just feel like, yeah, it's just another day, you know, you're, you're tuning your GPS and, and talking to your pal while you're while you're riding through it, you're in that advanced category. So again, even though you might be an intermediate rider, 
it doesn't mean that you're not going to ride in these difficult um, in these difficult or advanced features. Um, it just means that you're going to be in a transition skill set, or or maybe you'll need to have more protection. So again, it's we're all going to do this at some point. You're going to end up at something to go, holy heck, I made it. I I, I didn't know I would. But let's start with number one, snow. You know, and and snow is unpredictable. It's slick. And if you think about how many people are relaxed riding in snow or across snow I, patches. I kind of had to chuckle when that was at the top of the list. I mean, I think that's going to sink a lot of people right away. They're going to go, oh, because <laughs> yeah, no, snow no. makes the top of the list of the advanced. Yeah. And, and, you know, because snow itself is not necessarily an expert, you know, feature. You do need to understand it. You need to be able to stand up. You need to be able to re- read the terrain. Um, you know, if you're actually going to spend time riding the snow, you may want to stud the tires. I've, I've certainly done that before. Um, for certain areas that we had to ride, we would set them up. But that's when we're getting into the advance. You've really got to know your bike at this point. You've really got to be loose on the machine and, and get it. And, and this is where we start getting into things that are like narrow two-track switchbacks, you know. And and I've certainly, you know, gone down some of these and, and tipped the bike as you're going down. It's off camber and it hooks a hard right and it's just barely as wide as a Jeep. These are definitely difficult sections. And and again, let's keep the perspective we're not doing this on a 250. The assumption is we're on a lightly loaded mid to large displacement adventure bike, you know, that's basically stock setup, you know, maybe changing tires, but you know, again, it's, it's mostly just a stock bike. Um, and, and when you think of it from that perspective, these two track, you know, switchbacks they're they can be pretty challenging, you know, longer sections of deep sand or, or, you know, you start getting these, these deeper narrow track ruts or, and add water to it, you know, where they're a little more slick. I mean, it, they're, they're moderate or that intermediate category if they're dry, but it, as soon as you add water, it definitely automatically kicks up to the next level. Uh, you know, we start talking about adding flowing water, you know, on the water crossings and adding up to seven inches where now you may actually be getting some side push, you know, as it's pushing up against, you know, part of the skid plate. Um, you know, we start talking about the obstacles, you know, deeper gravel, you know, like three inches deep, you know, this is significant. The front end's going to move back and forth. And if you're not back on the bike, if you don't have the proper technique to ride through deep gravel or deep sand, you're going to end up in the sand and gravel. Cause remember part of this if you're green means you don't fall and you're not having near misses, you know, that, that's, the, that's the way you class yourself into this. So if you're riding through three inch deep, sand, you know, gravel and you're like, eh, whatever that, then you're definitely advanced, right? You're referencing yeah. back to the skill classification, how to tell if you're in this. So, so if you're in the green, it's, it's, a, it's no problem. It's like riding a street bike. It's an everyday thing for you. If you're in the yellow, you're, you're transitioning, which is where you have a little bit of difficulty. You're, you're falling over, but you're getting through. And then if you're in the red, you're having all kinds of falls and you're having crashes and you're kind of having lots of problems and maybe even damaging your bike. Exactly. And that's where we're trying to classify. And again, you want to be in the green or yellow. You know, that's our, that's our goal is to ride within the green and yellow. Green is where you're comfortable, you know, touring and that yellow, that transitioning, you know, you can make it through, you, you might tip over, you're not expecting to tip over. And that's when we get into there. And again, we're talking loose rocks, you know, like six inch diameter. And again, it doesn't sound that big till you start putting them on the ground and have to ride over them. You know, that's pretty darn difficult. And that's why it's rated at a four difficult. It's a single black diamond. These are, if you go out to the, the ski slopes, they call these expert routes, you know, expert, you know, stuff. So when you get into black diamond, we're talking very significant, you know, land features, you know, going up and down hills now where we're talking about mud on the hill, 
you know, or we're talking about where you have vertical drop-offs, you know, coming downhill where, you know, you might come down and then there's a, a, a cutback. You know, we've dealt with that before where there might be a root and it drops off and then it, and it hits the other side of the hill. Well, as you're going down, for a lot of people, you get a six-inch drop-off as you're going downhill on a 1,200cc bike with luggage on the back. I call that difficult. I'd, I'd say mm-hmm. you're pretty advanced. If you're doing that with no stress... And and you just think it's another day going down the road? Yeah, I'm going to call you an advanced rider. That's that's pretty significant skill set and confidence. So the top level double diamond, you have it as a five classification severe. You would call yourself at that point an expert rider. Uh, before we get into this, how many people are actual expert riders? I, I would say very well, experts only. You know, very, very, very few people mm-hmm. hit this. And again, when you start looking at the way we classify our skill level, you know, that green, yellow, and red category at the bottom of the chart that you're going to post up, uh, these are when you're riding through this stuff just going, yeah, this isn't a big deal. You know, that's when you're an expert. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, and believe me, I I do this for a living and, and I, I am an expert in my field, but I meet riders that I just look at and my jaw just, hits the ground. I mean, some of the, some of these professionals that get on these bikes and just, I can't believe what they're able to do on it. But again, I, to keep this in perspective, this is a, this is not a, an expert with full dirt gear, with full knobbies on a modified bike. This is a, right. This is not a relatively, yeah, this is an OEM, you know, this is your almost stock bike with some knobbies and some tip over protection and, and your camping gear for the weekend, you know, to, to keep things in perspective. Mm -hmm. Cause I've, you know, I, I went and did a, a Desert 100. It's one, it's a 100-mile race, and it's all for motocross bikes. And I did it in the adventure class. I rode my my 800 GS out there, and I had a auto clutch in it, and I had, you know, the best suspension. I had some good tires, and I went out. There's no way I would do that stuff on the 1200 I'm on with luggage. It's just not – so why even include those features in here? Uh, so I didn't. Um, but that's when you start getting into it. And somebody said, well, you shouldn't call it expert. You should just call it stupid. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really not helping with the whole confidence process. <laughs> but I did like the, the number classification where we went, okay, double black diamond, it's a level five, and we'll say it's severe terrain features. And, and so, yeah, this is when we start talking about getting out on dirt bike trails you know, with, with your big bike or a single track with switchbacks. Uh, you know, we're talking about areas and, and this does happen on some of the places we could ride with the adventure bikes. I rode through it. And this next one says maybe impassable unless the ideal conditions exist. And when I was riding through Utah, I saw signs on the side of the road and says impassable when wet. And when it was dry, it was hard pack, it was a, a novice level one or an easy level two road, but as soon as you added dirt, it became impassable. Water. It wasn't able to double. Yeah, it, it, water changes everything. So no, I mean, you said you, dirt. Since you had dirt, I'm just saying. Oh, as soon I'm as sorry. You water. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, as soon as you mix water and dirt together, then all of a sudden you have this this concoction that you just sink into, and you could see these huge ruts where these trucks had been buried in in this when it was wet, and then you know. Uh, it dries out and all of a sudden you're, you're back to this easy ride again. But if, if you're on these where it may be impassable and, and I did that where I went through a section and we looked at the map afterwards, it was on the Colorado backcountry discovery route. And I remember getting back to the hotel and our bikes are just covered. I mean, we had probably a hundred pounds of, of mud on these bikes and, and our, our gear is caked and we're exhausted. And we had, you know, we had, you know, shovels out to get the bikes out and we had made it like, 
I don't know, 10 miles. And we spent like six hours to do this. Um, it may be, a, maybe less miles than that. I just want to feel good about it. But when we looked at the map, we pulled it out and it had a nice little label on the side and said, this section impassable when wet. And of course we all got to thump our chest and go, ha, we proved them wrong. We got through, but, you know, but we literally had bikes laying on where we had just these very little, very, very, very light, um, descents, you know, where you get a, a little descent and, and an ascent where we're talking like a three foot drop, like almost like a really wide, deep water bar where we had to pull the, the winches out to winch the bikes up and over because it was so slimy and so wet. The wheels were packed so much. It was not rideable. There was, there, there was, we literally would have had to camp there or walk out if we didn't have the proper tools. And so even on, on the severe, you'll notice that it may need mechanical assistance, you know, a winch or something similar. Um, this is where you might get up on these, these trails where they have this off camber single track with an off camber and you're looking down a cliff on one side. I mean, really dirt bike type stuff. Uh, you get into water crossings, you know, I, I've done this up in Alaska where I, you know, this water was just flowing and I actually had to get off the bike as I recommend everybody do. If you're going to cross water, get off the bike, walk over and take a look at the, at the surface underneath the water and really gauge where you're going to go in, where you're going to come out. How's the water going to affect you? And I had to do this on this water crossing and I crossed high on it because it pushed me downstream. So by the time I got to the other side, it was on, uh, on this landing that I had kind of pointed out going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get to that. That's when you really get into kind of silly stuff. And, and again, it doesn't mean that, a a rider that's an intermediate level rider can't get through that water crossing. But if you're getting through and you're, you're expecting yourself to fall or you do, or, and you're struggling and you're fighting and it just means that you're out of your, out of your league for that particular feature. I so, think that's it, a great thing about it. I really have to commend you on the on the system you made up here because using the skill level classification at the bottom where you're, you're either a green, yellow, or red really helps you keep in perspective because you may get to a spot where you need to winch yourself out. Um, you may be stuck and it may be very technical, but just because you made it doesn't put you as an expert. And that's what people need to realize. Experience doesn't doesn't make you an expert. Training doesn't make you an expert. Both of those things are needed to get there. But just because you have them doesn't mean you're there. Just because you've ridden uh, off-road before doesn't make you uh, an expert. And, you know, I see that all the time with our adventure camps. And and that's why, you know, we keep moving them around to add different features. we got some great camps already set up for Spokane, Washington, and down in Oregon, dear Portland. And I'm still working on one for Idaho. But, you know, we get people all the time that come in and they have you know, hey, they talk about doing the the cross Canada off road, and they they talk about going to Argentina and and all these different places they've ridden. And I'm like, well, why are you at the camp? You know, that's my first thought. But as soon as they get on the bike, you realize just because they made it didn't mean that it was easy. And that's what they usually say. Well, now that I've done it, I realize there must have been an easier way. <laughs> you know, I worked really hard to do this, and and that's why they show up. And we have. A, it's really, really, really fun to do these training events that I do with PSSOR and, and even with Tour USA uh, motorcycle rentals because you get this this mix of riders where you'll get one rider who's never even been on a gravel road and you'll get another rider who's traveled internationally and they're all there for the same thing and we all go through the same process and at the end um, it's amazing to see some of these riders that had virtually no experience or no experience at all coming out 
right in the middle or, or sometimes near the top on the performance level because of the training that's involved. And that's where training really does have that payoff. And you mentioned it before. It's a way to accelerate the learning. I mean, like I said, you can get through the novice, the basic, you might even make it up to an intermediate level rider, you know, and that's that blue square, that moderate skill set on your own, but it might take you years to do it. Or you can come down and do one of the tours with me. And in four days, you're there. And I've seen that happen. It's not uncommon. And I, I'll say it again, but I think it's important. There's no shame in being at any one of these levels because even you started out as a novice. We do. And and the other thing to keep in mind is that just because you can't do all the features, I mean, this is this is just something I put together. You asked me, how do we do this? And, and so I've done the research to kind of piece this together, but it's not a holy grail. It's not the only defining factor. And, you know, a perfect example is, is my wife, Christina, and she... I said she traveled through South America with me and she's traveled through Central. She'd ridden in Alaska. And, you know, when she gets on a gravel road, she doesn't do it in a hurry. She never does. I mean, roads you and I might get on and do, you know, 85 miles an hour or, or 140 kilometers an hour. And we're like, woo, you know, this is no big <laughs> deal. I can see for forever. And it's hard pack and graded. I mean, and just, I just want to throw in there the, the caveat that, of course, this is at, at the posted speed limit maximum. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Um, yeah, that, that's what I, yeah. Um, but you're on these, you're on these gravel roads in the middle of no place. And we're just, because we see everything's good and we're going to be, we're going to be going as fast as we're comfortable. And she might be doing, you know, 30 or, you know, 30 miles an hour, 50 kilometers an hour, you know, puttering along on the same road. But I've seen her also go to these some of these expert or advanced trails with these gnarly rocks and, 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 you know, these vertical edges on, on going uphill and just going, Oh my gosh, this is, this is crazy. You know? And, and I always look at that stuff and, and, you know, bikes are laying all over the place and she'll go puttering up it, you know, at the same speed and just putters over everything. And so she's got this very advanced skill for anything that requires clutch or slow speed maneuver or this technical climbing ability, which is usually what people struggle with. But yet on something that's very simple and basic for other things, she isn't as comfortable. So she rides within her comfort level. So as a rider, you have to just kind of be open-minded to where this is. I mean, you may find many things on the expert or the advanced or the intermediate that you go, yeah, that's not a problem. But when you're building a chart, you're just going, look, these are, these are basic features or these are easy features. These are moderate features. And that's the way I try to put it together. And it's not designed to keep anyone out of a class or, or put anyone into a class. It's just trying to get the, you know, like the question we got from Bill, just trying to get an idea of how we can classify ourselves as a rider. And the thing is, it reminds me uh, on, in the summertime when I was out east riding there and I ran into a group of riders and, and we end up going for coffee. And one of the guys um, said that he, he hates sand. He just sort of uh, like it was sort of a joke with them that, you know, he hates sand. So he avoids sand at all costs. And, and my thought process is, well, I think if you find something like that that you hate that's the thing well maybe you need to go and take a course you know and and, and uh, focus on that in particular but for me when I find something like that I want to overcome it I, I do not want to avoid it well and and I 100% agree and I I do like the idea of where you threw in talking about training and, and Spokane, if you're talking about sand, that's why we do a, an adventure camp over in Spokane, Washington. People ask, and it's because we have this huge ORV park and the base of it is just 
sand and we have sand hills, we have sand pits, we have sand with, with ruts. I mean, it's just this incredible thing then. And that is one of the most common things, you know, sand and hills. And that location allows us to really advance people's training in those two categories. But if you just go out to the sand and you don't understand why you're struggling and you don't understand what you need to do to get beyond that, then sometimes you just get frustrated. And that's, again, where having an expert who can stand aside and watch you and recognize what is it you're actually struggling with and what is it I need to provide you as a rider so that you can get through that successfully. Because the other thing we don't have accounted for here is we have a whole lot of body types. I mean, we have riders that are tall. They can't touch, you know, they're tall. They can touch the ground. They're big. They're buff. They can hold everything up, riding a small bike. And then you got guys who can't touch the ground. Well, it makes a difference. You know, and, and women, you know, we have a lot of women that come through and, and my wife, of course, and she's, she's a petite gal. If her bike starts to tip over, it's done, it's going over and she can't pick it up, you know? And so that adds stress factor. And we have to keep in mind, all those things come into play as we're developing this and learning and trying to figure out where we are. So we'll wrap this up with just one last question I have for you, because I think it's, it's so important do tires come into this at all? Like as far as the rating system, because tires can make the difference on getting through something regardless of your skill. I mean, I realize a higher skill rider is going to be able to do more with a, with a less of a tire, but are tires factored into this? Well, you can't talk about tires unless you start talking about all of those other factors. No, absolutely. Tires can make a difference. And if it's dry, it may not make no difference at all. I rode all summer long on Anarchy threes or basically street tires. I'm not going out on those same roads now without switching over to, to uh, a more aggressive 50-50 or, or to a knobby tire. So it can make the difference whether you make it or not. But if we start talking about modifying to modify the features or where you are as an intermediate or expert rider, then you start going, well, well, if I get a KLR 650 and get rid of my 1200 GS, I'm still <laughs> in the classification. But now all of a sudden it's easy. Well, yeah. You know, you could also get rid of it and get a WR250 Yamaha, you know, one of the dual sports and ride that. And then it's all easy. Or I can take all my luggage off. And then you go, well, what if I don't have a light load? I said lightly loaded. Well, what's a light load for you? Is it 100 pounds? Is it 200 pounds? Is it 200 pounds in a passenger? That's going to change all of this. Um, the other thing that goes into this, you know, again, not to get on a, a rabbit hole, but I'm already there, is we start talking about time. Uh, the longer you have these features um, hitting you, the more fatigue goes into play. And so I might think, wow, I really should mark a section as difficult. If you have moderate features, you know, road features, but they're unrelenting nonstop over and over and over, that itself may be enough to go, this is a far more difficult road. Because remember, you classify it on the one type of uh, feature that you can't get around you know, that you don't have an option. And again, if that's 20 miles, but it's only 40 feet and it's one op scores at, you know, 20 miles and then it's the entire 20 miles. And I discovered that doing that 24 hour race this year going up North. Um, it was a crazy single track 24 hour race. And as I rode through the first lap and the laps were around seven miles, but as I rode through the first lap, every single obstacle on that trail was something I didn't struggle with. You know, we had vertical drop-offs. We had logs. We had to throw the bike down and drag them under these trees. We had we had cliffs that we went up, and, and we had loose rock. And none of this stuff was a problem skill set. 
but there was no relief. There was never a break. There was no straightaways. There was nothing. And by the end of that race, fatigue had played into such a factor that things that were very basic and very easy for me became huge obstacles and huge struggles for me. Instead of coming up and just jumping over a you know, a 18 inch log, I would, you know, just stop and cry for a little while and then, and then realize nobody's coming to save me. And then I would ride over it, you know, (laughs) you know, so there are other factors that we have to keep in mind when we're talking about fatigue and age and and all this other stuff. But again, this is really good though, just to have that reminder at the end of this to say that, you know, this is based on what you said. It's, it's based on the average, the average adventure bike, um, not heavily modified with a, a light load. And that's really important to keep in mind. When we're looking at this. And I think that really yeah. covers, I think you've nailed it. it. It really does cover most of us as riders. Well, I'm hoping this really helps people out because it is a question. I was really happy when you came up with this question and asked me because it is something that I hear all the time where people reference themselves and, and usually they overestimate their abilities. And then I'll get trainees can come in and they underestimate. And that seems to be a a common feature for people seeking training is those people underestimate where people not seeking training overestimate their abilities. But it's, I'm really hoping that this, uh, this does help people kind of give them uh, themselves an idea of where they're at. And more importantly, if they want to get to another level, if they see features that they're like, man, I sure wish I could do that, that it gives them an opportunity to recognize, to reach out to a training school or to, or to come to an organization like, like mine, you know, uh, PSSOR and do one of our training tours or do one of our training camps and really get to that, that next level of proficiency. So again, this chart will be posted in the show notes for this episode. You'll be able to find it on our website and, um, Brett, thank you very much. Great job. Thanks. It was really fun uh, coming back on the show and I'm looking forward to the next topic. I can't wait to see what you come up with. And that, of course, was Brett Tax. And um, if the classification system that we're talking about, we have it in our show notes for this episode. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Find this episode and look at the show notes. And you should be able to click on the image as well and download it if you want to put it in your computer for future reference. So if you have any feedback for the system, have a look at it. See what you think. See where you fit in on it. And if you've got feedback, send us an email or maybe drop by Facebook and and send us a note there. We'd, We'd love to hear what you think of it. going to take a quick minute and thank a couple of sponsors that have made this episode possible for you this week. And one is Motobird Adventures, headed up by Carrie Doherty out of Southern California. Carrie's got a, a couple of trips still for this year. Now, in her her trips are for women, and it's by a woman. Obviously, Carrie is the one that's running this. She has a real passion for riding. She likes to share her passion and her favorite spots to the people who come out on her trips. October 20th to 24th, she's got four days and three nights. Um, they're going to explore the central coast of California on paved roads and all types of motorcycles are welcome. They're going to do over 700 miles, just over 700 miles in that one. Um, then she has another one, November 11th to 16th, six days, five nights. It's a dual sport trip, and at least from San Bernardino, California, and it's six days, five nights. It's going to explore the desert of Southern California on and off the pavement. They're going to be staying at hotels and camping along the way. 
Sounds like a lot of fun. And this is the time of year. Boy, if you if you have a woman in your life that you want to treat, this might be it. Now, her trips only run with a maximum of seven women riders and the food and hotel is included. All you got to do is show up with your bike. And if you don't have a bike, she can set you up uh, or at least connect you with a local rental company to get you sorted out that way. www.motobirdadventures.com. And of course, anytime you're talking with her, let her know you heard her here on Adventure Rider Radio. And the other one I wanted to mention was IMS Products. IMS has a complete line of adventure pegs available for your motorcycle, my motorcycle. I'm using them on my bike right now, and I absolutely love them. I think, you know, if you have not tried a aftermarket foot peg, you owe it to yourself to look at what IMS has. These are top-notch foot pegs. They're incredibly durable. They're made in the USA. They're guaranteed for life. The owner stands behind him himself. And I've got a chance to try these pegs out. They, they make a world of difference. If you haven't tried a set of aftermarket pegs and you want a top quality set of pegs, look at what IMS has to offer. I'm telling you from experience. I don't talk about this stuff unless I know www.imsproducts.com and anytime you're dealing with them definitely let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so I have a question for you what is your rider sag? Now, if you're scratching your head thinking, what is he talking about? Well, that is something, according to Ted Porter, that you need to know. Exactly. Everybody should know what their rider sag is. Every motorcycle rider should know. Ted Porter is the owner of the Beamershop.com. Also known as as WilbursAmerica.com. And um, after years of being a motorcycle technician and then being a dealership service manager, I opened this company in 2004. And our focus uh, the last 10 years or more has really been on suspension. We also import and distribute a lot of cool products such as the Hex Easy Can and the GS911, uh, some very cool products from the Hexcode company. But uh, the other uh, the other uh, face of the business uh, has really been suspension and we import and distribute six brands. Ted, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. I should say welcome back because we talked, well, I guess a couple of years ago now, we did a a full um, piece on suspension. We talked to you about that. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Today we're talking about preload adjustment or adjusting our rider sag. And, you know, I've run into people before who think that their adjustment for the spring preload is for adjusting the height of the motorcycle. In other words, they can lower it one time and then raise it another. So exactly what is preload supposed to be for us? Right. So preload refers to how much tension is added to the spring. In other words, if the spring on the shock absorber is 200 millimeters long, if it were sitting on the bench, uh, not installed on a shock absorber, and it was 200 millimeters long, but after you installed it on the shock, it was 190 millimeters long, then that means you have 10 millimeters of preload on that spring. And typically there is some fixed preload. In other words, how much preload is on the spring when the preloader is turned off. And then there is an additional amount of preload that you can add. So um, the idea is to add tension to the spring to get your sag correct. So why do you have to add tension to it? Why do you need to have a preload on it to begin with? Well, the reason you'll see preload adjusters on a rear shock, uh, even with the original equipment shock, 
is that obviously loads change. You may be solo one day, you may be two up another day, you may add luggage for a load, and then maybe you're, you're, you remove that luggage because now you're just commuting. And obviously, as you add additional loads or subtract loads from the back of the bike, the sag, the amount that the, shop, the motorcycle uh, uh, sags under its load is going to change. And uh, there are reasons why there's a preload adjuster there, even on factory shocks. Unfortunately, a lot of riders don't know what it's there for or they don't use it. You know, we see that all the time. But really, everybody should know what their rider sag is. Every motorcycle rider should know. It's easy to measure. It's easy to adjust. And there are reasons why your sag should be correct. Um, number one, we want the shock to be in its normal operating range. The shock absorber, for it to work properly, uh, needs to be at roughly 30% or maybe a third of its stroke so that the other 70% of the stroke is available for impacts as you're riding down the road or, or off-road, whatever the case. Um, if you're riding down the road with excessive sag, now you're very close to the bumper and you may not even be able to get enough shaft velocity going to get the valving inside to open and operate properly, number one. Uh, number two, you may be riding down the road smacking into the bumper. Obviously, you're not going to get a very good ride quality out of that. And then it has an effect on your trail up front. As the back of the bike goes downward, the opposite tends to happen up front. It tends to lift. So now we have a front end that's uh, your, your weight transferring onto the back of the bike. The front end is getting light. The, the back end is low. And now your trail up front is getting long. And when the trail gets long, the bike wants to go straight. So it can be kind of a, a lazy steering motorcycle when you're having these issues with too much sag in the back and as a result, too long uh, trail up front. So just to be clear, though, the, the preload adjuster, when we're talking the back shock here, it's not there to adjust the height of your motorcycle. Uh, like as far as one day no, I want it, it tall, one day I want it short. No, it's a very good question because sometimes people get that confused with shock length. You know, the shock length is going to determine the height of the motorcycle. But the sag should always be the same. Uh, I've had other people uh, say to me that um, they really like when a passenger gets on the bike because it makes it a little lower. Well, it shouldn't make it lower. When the passenger gets on the bike, you should add preload so that the height stays the same. It should always be the same. And um, it, it's not about setting the height of the motorcycle. It does have that effect. But that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to keep you in that 30%. And this is a general rule of thumb. You know, guys on the track tend to be a little closer to 25%. Uh, rising rate linkages, if you want a better ride quality, you should be, you know, closer to that 25%. And we can get into more detail about that if you like. But, um, but as a general rule of thumb, you want to be in that 30% of your total travel uh, range for, uh, for your SAG. And, and 30%, just to be clear is because you're likely going to have less call for your wheel to drop than you will for it to compress. Right. And we still do want that. You raise a good point because we still do want that 30% headroom in the shock so that as you're riding down the highway at 70 miles an hour and you encounter a dip and it's even more important off-road really, and you encounter a dip you want the suspension to be able to drop down into that dip and stay in contact with the ground. If you don't have enough sag, let's say you're only running around with 10 or 15% sag, 
then what can happen is the shock can literally top out as the tire tries to drop down into this dip and you'll lose contact with the ground. You know, the shock's primary job is to keep the tire in contact with the ground. And if we don't have enough sag, um, I'm sorry, excuse me, if we have too little sag, then we can have a problem on the opposite side where the, the, the tire does not stay in contact with the ground. It can't drop down into that dip um, and respond the way that we want it to. And, and I think that's something that is a common sort of misconception about suspension systems is suspensions on bikes or anything for that matter is to try and keep the tire contacted to the road all the time. Exactly. Right. And uh, certainly sag is, is, is important, obviously valving and so forth, which is probably beyond the context of this conversation. Um, that's a whole other show all of itself on its own. But uh, the, the, the shock absorber, the valving in the shock, the spring, obviously the spring rate, we haven't even touched on, on uh, that topic. The spring rate has to be correct for the load. Um, and you want your sag set up properly so that the bike's attitude is correct and it's balanced front to back. You, you, what, what, what we commonly see is too much sag, um, particularly if it's an original equipment shock. They tend to have lighter springs on them, and then you put a guy, a bigger guy, especially uh, uh, loaded up for uh, for a trip, and sometimes even with maximum preload dialed in, you still can't get the sag right. But Again, back to the point I made earlier, it's so important that people know what their rider sag is. So often people will call and say, hey, I'm thinking about lowering my bike. And I ask them, okay, well, why do you need to do that? And what's the situation? And what is your sag? It is rare that someone can answer that question. And I feel that it's just as important as tire pressure. Everybody should know that their bike is set up properly. And it's so easy to do. Now, we've been talking about the rear shock till now. What about sag in the front? Yeah, sag in the front is equally important, but it tends to vary less because these loads that we're talking about adding to the motorcycle are all over the rear shock. You know, adding a top case, a passenger, additional luggage and so forth tends to all be pushing down on the rear of the motorcycle. And again, it also tends to lift the front. So Typically, we don't have sag issues up front. Yes, it's important if we're doing cartridge kits or spring fork spring changes or what have you. We are also very interested in the front sag being correct, but it tends to be less of an issue. Um, what people really need to focus on is their rear sag, the rear suspension sag. That's 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 the critical one. Okay, so let's run through some of the nomenclature that we're just going to talk about now. When you've referred to rider sag and a couple of other things, can you just run through the basics? Yeah, sure. So um, the the rider sag has had a lot of different uh, names over the years. It's also been referred to as race sag, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, you're ready to race, you're on the track, you're on the bike, you're in your leathers, you're, you're loaded and ready to race. And so that's your race sag. Um, we tend to refer to it as rider sag just to make it a little easier to, to remember and, and to understand for our customers. I think that's pretty obvious. The rider sag is uh, is your load. What is your load? Your payload, your complete load, ready to go. The uh, static sag is the sag of just the weight of the bike, without the rider or passenger. And static sag numbers are important too, um, for a variety of reasons. But um, the, the the goal is to get the rider sag correct then we like to see what the static sag numbers are. 
because it gives us a, 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 a window into the, the spring rate. Is the spring rate correct? Um, and it's really simple if you think about it. When you set your rider sag, let's say that the spring is too soft for your, for your weight. When you finish setting your rider sag and you get off the motorcycle, you've had to add so much preload to get your sag correct that the bike is going to go way up in the air as soon as you get off of it. In some cases, it might even top out the suspension where you have no static sag number at all. So when those static sag numbers are really small, you know, dropping down below 5 or 10% of your travel, then that tells us that spring is a little soft for you. And then, of course, the opposite is true as well. If you see your static numbers in the 15%, you know, starting to, to really climb, where, in other words, your sag is, your static sag is really high. In other words, when you take it off the center stand and, and, and it just sits there of its own weight, it's actually uh, fairly low. It's dropping considerably. But your rider sag is totally fine. Then that tells us it requires so little preload to get the rider sag correct that the spring may very well be too firm. So again, we, we like to set the rider sag, then have a look at the stag, sag numbers to see where they are. Um, and then, of course, the static sag number also has a lot to do with um, how easy it is to take on and off the center stand or uh, how much side stand lean angle you have and so forth. You know, if, um, if your static sag numbers are really high, then, of course, you, when you take it off the center stand, it's just going to drop to its knees. And when you try and put it back up on the center stand, it would be very difficult. So that would be an indication to me that the spring rate was too firm for that load. So, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop it right here for just a second. I want to make sure that you grasp what we're talking about here. We're talking about static and rider sag. They're two different things, but they're, they're correlated together. What happens is when you lift the bike up off the suspension, okay, there's no weight on the suspension, and then you set it down just the weight of the bike, the amount that the, the rear spring compresses, that's your static sag. That's when the bike sits down, that's static sag. So whatever that drop is. The rider sag is when you put yourself on it with all your gear on and whatever you're carrying with you, the amount that it drops when you get on it. So static and rider sag. Now let's get back to it with Ted. Okay, and, and are we also worrying about like if the spring was too soft and we're really cranking the, the preload up, we, I guess we'd have to worry about um, travel and we'd have to worry about spring bind? Well, we could certainly get into uh, to all of that. Yeah, you can't just keep cranking tons of, uh, of uh, preload into a spring without some limit. Now, usually that limit is built into the shock. Usually a manufacturer makes it such that there's no way that you can crank so much preload into it that you're going to coil bind. But if people are taking this on themselves and, you know, we've had a couple situations where uh, someone will call and say, hey, I'm, I've got my shock apart. I've got a spring compressor and I'm, I'm moving the preloader around on the body and I, I'm going to add some more fixed preload. So I'll have more capacity. That's very dangerous because the risk is let's say that you have a hundred millimeters. Okay. So at this point, Ted's going to get into some more technical explanation and he's going to give measurements and things like that, which could get confusing if you're not into what he's talking about, if you don't fully understand. So to make things simple here, I'm just going to say that he's talking about do-it-yourselfers. If you're trying to pull your shock apart or add preload to increase capacity for your, your stock spring, you can't do that because what could happen is you squish it up too far and you might get spring binding. Um, and that's very dangerous 
for your suspension system. So don't really worry about that. That's not part of adjusting your rider sag. If you're leaving everything as it is on your bike stock, you can adjust your rider sag and you're not going to have to worry about spring bind. And we, of course, make sure of that when we do any spring changes um, or do any kind of custom setup in our shop. We, we, of course, look at all those numbers to make sure it's safe. So I want to get to how to set up our preload. But first, you've mentioned a couple of times about the hydraulic adjustment. So can you just mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about that so that people understand what you're referring to? Sure. So um, most rear shocks today have a knob that you can turn, which will add preload to the spring. And if you watch at the top of the shock where this cylinder is that the piston comes out of, as you turn that knob, the piston will start to drop down out of that cylinder and push down on the spring. Same thing with uh, uh, electronic shocks. So basically the, the hydraulic adjuster and the electronic adjuster are really just remote ways to adjust your, your shock uh, spring rate, or not spring rate, but, but uh, spring tension. Exactly. Not unlike the old nuts that you used to have to go underneath and even are on some bikes still that you have to crack the nuts loose and, and wind the nut up to squish the spring exactly. down on the shock. So exactly. basically that sort of thing just being remote. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's performing the same task. It's just making it a heck of a lot easier so that you don't have to get the spanner wrench out and turn these uh, adjustable threaded rings. Easy is always nice. I, I like that as well. <laughs> but, okay. It's also sometimes vital if, if the shock is buried. You know, there are some motorcycles where the shock is, is just not accessible. Right. And uh, at that point, the hydraulic preloader becomes kind of mandatory, really. Okay, so now to set our uh, rider sag, mm-hmm. what do we do? The, uh, the simple way to do it is we're just going to break this down into measurement A and measurement B. They're, they're, I could get more complex, but the part of this that's really critical, that it would be wonderful if motorcyclists everywhere, whether they're adventure riders, street riders, what have you, actually knew what their sag was. So I'm just going to do this in a really simple, basic way. Um, the first measurement, we want the rear shock to be completely topped out. So if you have a center stand, you put the bike on the center stand. You make sure there's no load on the rear tire. And you measure from the final drive or the axle nut or some uh, point that represents essentially the center line of the rear wheel. Um, And basically this measurement doesn't really matter what it is. It's a reference point, right? That's exactly right. So uh, I will sometimes use little blue painter's tape and draw a line on it just to make it easy to get repeatable measurements. And the first uh, measurement is we're going to fix the the tape measure on the final drive or the axle nut, whatever the case, and we're going to pull straight up and find a spot, a fixed spot on the motorcycle directly above that point. It can be a bag mount, it can be a body panel, it doesn't matter. And um, I usually will slap a piece of blue painter's tape there as well and, and draw a line on it. Measurement A will be our, our first measurement where there's no load on the rear tire. Then you, once you determine that number and you write it down, you push the bike off the center stand and you sit on it and you, tr- you get all your weight into the seat. You, if you only have two people, you and a helper, then just use your toes to keep from falling over and get as much weight into the seat as possible. If you have a third person, it's ideal if they could hold the motorcycle and you could put your feet up on the foot pegs. But, but it's not necessary it's, it, for us to 
at least get into the ballpark. And just to so be clear, you're, you, mm-hmm. you want to do this with whatever load you're going to carry too, right? So, I mean, if you, you're planning Correct. on packing up, you want to have all that on there. You should have your gear on the whole bit. Correct. That's exactly right. So regardless of your load, whether it's solo or two up or what have you, the sag should always be the same. So measurement A, no load on the bike. Write the number down. Measurement B, you push it off the center stand, you sit on it, you get all your load into the seat, and you have somebody measure that same location again. Write that number down. A minus B is your rider sag. And you want to increase or decrease that preload until that rider sag is roughly 30% of your travel. Now, again, this is a starting point. Um, We have customers who've done various things to better suit their riding conditions. But, but, a, but a general rule of thumb is you want to get into that 30% range of your total suspension travel. And it's very easy to find your travel. It's either in your rider's manual or you can find it online. Um, but let's say, for example, you have an R1200 GS Adventure with 220 millimeters of travel. 30% of that is 66 millimeters. You convert that into inches, it's two and a half inches. So you want to you want to compress your suspension two and a half inches with your load, whatever that load happens to be, and it really is that simple. I've had so many people say that's it; <laughs> it's not any more complicated. <laughs> we no, spent more really time isn't. talking about the nomenclature and different things than we did the adjustment itself. Yes, it's simple, and, and that's just, why you say that all riders should know this. All riders should know this, and there so few people. You know, I remember a few years ago we did an adventure camp. Um, and we did a seminar and we did some, uh, you know, some workshops that helps have people set up their sag. And I would watch these bikes roll in at the entrance and bike after bike after bike. They were all set up wrong. Their sag usually way over sagged in the back front end lifted up. And, you know, some of these people have been riding for two or three days uh, to get to this event with their sag set up all wrong. And it's amazing what uh, just a, a very simple sag adjustment can do to how the bike performs. So it really is important. Okay, so just going to stop for a second, do a quick little recap, make sure you're following what Ted is saying here. He's saying that you choose a point on your axle and then on your frame, mark it because that's going to be your measurement points. And it doesn't matter where it is. It's a reference point. Lift the bike up on the center stand possibly, but so the rear wheel is hanging. So it's it's off the ground take a measurement, then take it off the center stand, get a buddy to hold it, get your gear on and your luggage, anything else that you want, because it should be set up with all your full weight on there that you're going to be riding with. Then put your feet up on the pegs. Your friend is holding your bike up, bounce up and down a couple times on the bike to make sure the suspension is settled and take another measurement. The difference between those two measurements is your rider sag. It's as simple as that. And I think it's worth repeating. Regardless of your load, whether it's solo or two up or what have you, the sag should always be the same. That's the whole point of rider sag, is it should be the same regardless of your load. So in other words, if you're riding one day with luggage and the next day without, you need to readjust your sag. Now, a simple method you can use so that you know what's going on all the time is do the settings for your load and then without a load, maybe the two different ways you ride, and record how many turns of the knob you're turning it in or back. And then you can go back to those settings without having to do all the measurements over again. Okay, so if we get to the point that we're trying to adjust the sag and we can't get it adjusted properly, in particular, if we've got a lot of weight on there, I guess that's the time to take it into a shop. Well, of course, this goes to the whole point of spring rate. When you buy a new shock from us, there are probably five, six different springs that we're going to choose from based on your weight and your loads. 
We're also going to look at the hydraulic preloader, the amount of lift that you know is on the shock that we're selling because there's there, there, there are lots of choices there, especially for the adventure bikes. They, that market is so popular now. It's so huge, and there's tons of choices. So we, we're, we're going to want to make sure that that spring is set up properly for you. If you buy a bike used and it's got some nice aftermarket shocks, um, I'll often get phone calls where people are asking me about what the adjusters do. But they didn't give me the really important information. What number is on the spring? You know, we can certainly talk about damping adjustments, but let's first make sure the spring rate is correct for you. You may have bought the bike from a guy who's 300 pounds and you're 165. The spring rate's wrong. Um, in the same to, same vein, if, if, you, if you're riding a stock on a stock shock and you're not 85 kilogram, which is 187 pounds, um, if you're not reasonably close to that weight, there's a darn good chance that spring is wrong for you. And in some cases, we can sell you a spring. If you want to try and get a little bit more life out of that shock, maybe the bike's brand new, uh, we can put a, a spring on there that's uh, more suited to your weight. If the shock has some age on it, of course, you know our recommendation at that point would be to put something of better quality on there. The OEM shocks are almost always a price point uh, product, and you can, you can always do better. But, uh, but really, the spring rate, SAG is important, but... It, it may be difficult to get the sag right if the spring rate is just completely wrong for you. So probably the most common scenario would be someone overloading the bike for that spring rate and finding they, they can't get the sag. They've got way too much rider sag is, is what I'm trying that, to say. That is the most common thing. But I will tell you, um, we also see the other side of the equation where I had a rider recently stop in with an F800 GS and he wanted to lower the bike. And from looking at him, I realized he was not 187 pounds. So I first asked him, well, do you know where the preload adjuster is now? It should be unscrewed all the way. And he said, no, I don't know. I said, I'm guessing you don't know your, what your sag is. He said, no, I don't. But, but he said, I'd like to lower the bike about an inch and a half. And I said, well, before we have that discussion, we, we need to see where your sag is. So uh, the bike was there. So we put him on the bike, measured out his sag. That motorcycle should have two and a half inches of rider sag. He had one inch. So coincidentally, the amount of lowering that he wanted was actually achievable by simply having correct sag. So his issue was not that he needed a shorter shock. His issue was that he needed correct sag because correct sag was an inch and a half lower than, than where he currently was. That stock shock was just not correct for him. Would you say that the stock shock on most bikes is not adequate, or at least the spring rate is not adequate for a bike loaded for adventure, you know, with, with your metal panniers on it and all your gear? Well, as far as the shock itself is concerned, if you're going to take that bike off pavement, um, in, in almost every case, it's not adequate. And this this may be a little off topic since we're talking about springs and and sag and so forth, but um, most often the issue with a stock shock off-road is thermal stability. It's about heat management. These shocks cycle way more per minute. Uh, the, the, the compression speeds are much higher when you leave the pavement. It, even just nice dirt and gravel roads. Uh, you may not feel like there's a lot of drama going on down there, but your shock does. <laughs> uh, your shock is isolating you from it. And the shock temperatures go way up. 
And uh, we see all kinds of problems associated with that. The, the last time I measured how much weight I could put on an adventure bike with the preloader up all the way, um, I ended up at about, I think it was about 260, 270 pounds, something like that on this particular bike. It's going to vary from one bike to the next. But once I got up to about that amount, the preloader was up all the way. And any additional weight that I added at that point was going to mean incorrect sag because I just could not give it any more preload. The spring rate was just not adequate. So you have some flexibility in that stock shock as long as you're not going to overheat it because you're off-road for too long of a stretch without allowing the shock to cool. Um, but if you're a 240, 250-pound person, you're putting luggage on it, and now you're up into the 300-plus payload, I think you'll find if you measured your sag, you're not going to get there. It's just you, you crank the preload up all the way, and there, you just won't be able to restore sag. So if your bike is changing height day to day from the different uses that you put it through, then you're not adjusting your rider sag properly, clearly. Correct. The rider sag, yeah, your bike's height should be always be the same. If the sag is correct, and it's always correct, then it's always going to stay the same. Ted, great information. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. It's always fun. Well, that's some really good information for all of us for our day-to-day riding, something that's obviously very, very important. That was Ted Porter from The Beamer Shop, and uh, you can find out more about him by visiting his website, www.beamershop.com. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. And I think we had a lot of good things on this week, a lot of stuff to learn. Maybe it's a a lot to take in. You might have to listen to it a couple of times, but that's okay. It's a great thing about a podcast. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for dropping by and listening to what we have to put out. Don't forget, you can drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and download all of our shows. No charge. Just drop by and listen to everything you want. There's even a search uh, field on the right-hand side. You can search for things by tags if you want to do that and uh, we have our other show raw which is a once a month show roundtable discussions about motorcycle travel um, with a group of people we have on there a lot of fun listen to that one subscribe separately thank you very much if you'd like to help support the show don't forget drop by the website click on the support button we would love to hear from you and we certainly need it my name is jim martin see you next week This is Jackie Kennedy from Posty Notes and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 